our festival guest, our special festival guest, Kaiser Eckes Ekman, is author of Being and Being Brought, uh, Being Bought, Prostitution, Surrogacy and the Split Self. She is a Swedish journalist, she's a writer, she's an activist, she's also author of Stolen Spring, a book about the Euro crisis seen from... Athens. In fact, she writes mostly about economics at the moment. She's a member of the editing collective of the anarchist magazine Brand. She is the founder of the network Feminists Against Surrogacy, the climate action group called Climax, and she's your guest today. Make her feel very welcome. Thank you. Well, it's so bright up here. Um, how do you all do? <laughs> I can't really see you from here. And thank you, Natasha, for the welcoming speech. You've asked all the rhetorical questions. I don't know what is left for me to say. Um, thank you also to the organizers of this festival for bringing me for my first time to Australia. I've never been here before, and I didn't realize it was that far. And then when you get here, it's exactly the same as home, which is strange. Um, you might agree or disagree with what I'm going to say now, but one thing you have to get right, and that's my name. So it's Kaisa. In Sweden, we don't pronounce the J. It's like a Y. So it's Kaisa Ekis Ekman. Ekman is my last name. And because Kaisa is such a popular name in Sweden, Ekis is a nickname derived from my last name. So now you know that. Um, surrogacy, let's talk about it. Um, as you were saying earlier, Natasha, up until a few months ago, what you would hear in the media about surrogacy would be beaming couples who were able to have their children thanks to surrogacy. You would see beautiful, gorgeous babies. You would see Nicole Kidman, Elton John, all these famous people showing their babies. And you would hear the occasional surrogate saying, well, you know, I was really happy to do this and I would do it again if I could. Now, lately, another side of surrogacy has emerged, and I do think that the baby Gammy case will be to Australia what the baby M case was to the US in the 80s, um, the case that shows another side of surrogacy. Um, a man who first orders a mail-order bride from China, then goes on to order children from Thailand, only to leave one of them behind with the words, nobody wants a disabled child. Um, I am not here to speak about beautiful babies. I am a feminist, a socialist, a humanist, a Marxist, and a mother, I have to add as well. And I'm here to speak about the industry of surrogacy. Um, I wrote this book, Being and Being Bought, uh, in 2010, which recently came out in English. And there I compare two industries, prostitution and surrogacy. These two industries both commodify the female body in different ways. I would say surrogacy is the reverse coin of prostitution. In the sex industry, what's required from the woman, um, in the case that it is a woman, because of course, as we all know, it isn't always a woman, um, is sex without reproduction. The sex buyer does not want the prostitute to get pregnant. If she would, she's suspected to have an abortion. He doesn't want to know anything about that. In the surrogacy industry, what's required is reproduction without sex. Nobody has sex with a surrogate to procreate the, the actual child. In fact, the fact that you don't have sex with the surrogates enables the buyer, uh, the male buyer, to still be faithful to his wife, or in the case that it's uh, a gay male couple, enables them to keep their gayness intact while in fact fa fathering a child. 
Um, these two industries prey on the old notions of the whore and the Madonna, the two archetypes of female oppression. Nowadays, both the whore and the Madonna are on the market for sale. Um, both of them require uh, women to renounce their own interests, their own desires for the sake of buyers, and especially, as we know, working-class women, because those are the ones that are mainly doing these both things. Um, in the case of the prostitution industry, she's required to have sex on the buyer's terms. It's what he wants. It's how he wants to have sex. It's not about her orgasm. It's about his desires. In the surrogacy industry, it's about the buyer's interest to have a child. She is required to give up her child, often never to see it again. She's not allowed to take part in the upbringing of the child. The child would not bear her name, and she's just supposed to receive the money and go on with her life. Um, when I was writing about this, I also realized the arguments used to defend these two industries are very similar. We hear, of course, about free choice, and we hear about, you know, it's every woman's right to do what she wants with her body, of course, and it kind of perverted way of kidnapping the, the feminist argument, I would say. And there's this unholy alliance between the neoliberal right and the postmodern left in this. Um, the neoliberal right, of course, defending any industry, saying it's people's choice, and the postmodern left having forgotten everything about historical materialism, dialectics, and the dynamics of power. And also, I have to add, sadly, some feminists who also forgot the basis of female oppression, which always has been sex and reproduction. Um, however, there is a difference. You know, in prostitution, it's often claimed that, oh, what she's selling is not her body, it's a service. You cannot say that about surrogacy, because what is being sold is very tangible. It's a newborn baby. And philosophers have gone to great lengths to say that this is not baby trade. Um, I study a lot of the arguments in my book, and they say things like, well, you're just paying for the pregnancy, you're paying for the service of the pregnancy, you're not paying for the actual baby. Well, sorry, you know, they're not paying random people to be pregnant and have their children, which they could do if they were really that benevolent. They're paying for the baby to be handed over to them. Um, other philosophers say, well, you know, um, you're paying for the child, but it doesn't give you the right to treat the child as an object, so it's not property, so it can't be baby trade. And there's all sorts of arguments. Um, for me, this is clear. Uh, commercial surrogacy is baby trade. The woman is being paid when she hands the child over. If that's not baby trade, I don't know what baby trade is. But let me get back a bit to how the surrogacy industry started, because as opposed to with prostitution, you cannot say this is the world's oldest profession, really, you know. This just started recently. It started in the U.S. in the 1970s, and it has an interesting link to the fact that abortion was legalized in the U.S., and by the way, I'm for free abortion, if anybody would think something different. Um, when abortion was legalized, the supply of newborn babies decreased drastically because, of course, unmarried poor women would rather have abortions than, you know, have the child and give it up. So the infertile childless couples from the upper middle class then turned to international adoption. But there were some of them who did not want a child from a different ethnicity than themselves, right? So ads started appearing in the press um, asking for fertile young women to uh, become pregnant, be inseminated, as it was done back then, and be pregnant and give up the child uh, for $10,000. Um, then, of course, agencies got involved and saw their chance to make profit, of course. So all these agencies started appearing, um, connecting these 
childless couples with poor, fertile women. And the product in this industry, of course, is the baby. Um, then when embryo transplants started uh, becoming common, this changed the face of the industry. Because, of course, now you could have your newborn white genetic baby born from an Indian mother for less than one-third of the price. So that's when the industry moved to places like uh, India, Thailand. Also now it's very big in Ukraine. And who are these buyers? Uh, the first category is heterosexual couples uh, that cannot have children because often the wife is infertile for some reason. The second category is male homosexual couples who want a child but without a present mother. They do not want to, for example, pair up with a lesbian couple or a single woman. They want a child for themselves only. Third category, as we heard about the Japanese men, single men who just you know, don't want a woman or just want a child for themselves so can't find one. And the fourth one is career women who don't want to ruin their bodies, as we've seen in Hollywood. You know, you want a child, maybe you're using your own eggs, but you don't want to ruin your body for the sake of your career, or sports women, people like that. So, but in all these cases, they're richer than the surrogates. Uh, we're talking about an industry where basically poor women, working class women uh, from developing countries are giving up kids for the rich white couples from the West. And I just want to read to you a quote from uh, an Indian surrogate so um, you understand the background of some of these women who become surrogates in India. Um, this is a woman called Salma, and she says, Who would choose to do this? I have had a lifetime's worth of injections pumped into me. Some big ones in my hips hurt so much. In the beginning, I had about 20 to 25 pills almost every day. I feel bloated all the time. But I know I have to do this for my children's future. This is not work, this is a compulsion. Where we are now, it can't possibly get any worse. In our village, we don't have a hut to live in or crops in our farm. This work is not ethical, it is just something we have to do to survive. When we heard of the surrogacy business, we didn't have any clothes to wear after the rains. Just one pair that used to get wet. And our house had fallen down. What were we to do? So all these reports that you might have heard about it being the middle class from India doing this are not really that accurate. Um, some people would say, well, you know, at least they get money. You know, isn't that good? To me, that's the most cynical argument you could ever use, as if poverty was the excuse for exploitation. Um, the way to end poverty is not to exploit the poor. It is to change the world order and the inequalities in the world. Um, the debate, I would say, about surrogacy is often fragmented. Um, we're talking about different kinds of surrogacy as if they didn't you know, belong together. Some people say, well, look at what's happening in India. We should legalize it you know, in the West. I've, I've seen that there is this argument in Australia. If we legalize commercial surrogacy over here, people won't have to go overseas. Well, first of all, uh, facts actually disprove that because the foreign buyers in India, um, the, the nationality that dominates is the Americans, and commercial surrogacy is legal in many states in the US. Basically, they go because it's cheaper. Not everybody can afford to pay all that money costs to have a surrogate in your own country, so you would go where you can get it cheaper. Um, then we're also told the altruistic surrogacy is something different. You know, if you have a sister that has a child for her sister, you know, that's something completely different. Well, I would agree with that to some extent. But the more I study surrogacy, the more I realize that is also a trap. 
First of all, is it really fair that a woman should become pregnant with all that that entails? Care the child for nine months, give up her lifestyle. She cannot drink, she cannot smoke, she cannot live the way she wants to live uh, with all the risks that a pregnancy entails, all the things that can happen. For example, uh, there has been cases where women have become infertile through surrogacy, where they have actually died um, giving birth uh, in surrogacy. So to ask a woman to take all those risks without getting a single cent in return, is that really fair? Um, the second question is that I think that preys also on a very old notion of what a woman is for. Uh, the woman should sacrifice herself for others, and she's called an angel, she's called a great, generous woman. Is that something that we want to encourage young girls to do, or should they rather think about their own desires, their own interests? I would also say that Altruistic surrogacy or non-paid surrogacy might not commercialize pregnancy, but it functionalizes it. It turns pregnancy into something that is uh, separate from the woman, as if she was, as the metaphors in the surrogacy business often say, a bun in the oven, she's a container, uh, the child has nothing to do with her, as if she didn't have feelings for the child. It does happen that women who are pregnant feel something for their babies. Um, so I think we need to look at this as a totality. Um, we have a range of sur surrogacy cases, from the sister who does it for a sister, to the commercial contracts, to the agencies, um, and to the overseas Indian um, surrogacy clinics. And recently, pimps and traffickers have gotten in the business. And why does that happen? Well, it's the same reason as they get into the prostitution business. You know, if you look at how a market works, that's how it works. There's always somebody who can do it cheaper. If you cut the cost of the salary, it will, of course, be cheaper. How do you cut the cost of the salary to the surrogate or the prostitute? Well, you don't pay her. How do you do it not to pay her? Well, you just kidnap her, you put her somewhere, and you make her do it anyway. So uh, there has been baby factories in Thailand where women have been kidnapped and put into a kind of, you know, um, a brothel, I would say, uh, but a surrogate brothel. And uh, finally, they were able to, uh, there were Vietnamese women in this case, they were able to call their embassy and get out. And the UN has warned that trafficking for surrogacy is rising, also in places like China. So... In my opinion, I think we're dealing with an industry that is just growing and growing, and we need to stop this before it becomes a monster. The EU Parliament has recently called on states within Europe to recognize surrogacy as an exploitation of women's reproductive capacities. And I, would actually, I was surprised, actually, by the, the dangerous idea title of this festival. And I thought, you know, is this a dangerous idea that I'm coming up with? Because in Sweden, like, what I'm saying is not really that dangerous. If you are a feminist or if you are somehow left-wing in Sweden, um, you are against surrogacy. Um, and there's no question about that. So... And I have to put a disclaimer, it's not that I don't understand or can't relate to childlessness or that I feel cold-hearted against people who can't have children of their own or that I'm against gay rights or something like that. You know, I can totally relate to that. I have a child myself. But I don't know if the way to solve it really is to make millions of women become pregnant, give up their kids, put their health at risk and create an industry that actually commodifies women's bodies and makes babies something that is for sale. Um, if you weigh it up, 
on one side, what are the positive sides of surrogacy? Well, people can have their babies, right? They can have their own genetic newborn, usually white, you know, if we're going to be frank, because that's what's in demand, babies. On the other hand, we risk to commercialize not only women and children, but life itself. Recently, children born through surrogacy have started speaking up in the States because that's where they're old enough. And um, one of them, Jessica Kern, she said, well, when you know the only reason that you exist is a big fat paycheck, it doesn't feel that nice. Um, I don't know how much time I have left. 15 minutes left. Um, I use in my book a concept called reification. What is that? It was used by the Hungarian Marxist, George Lukacs. And what he means by reification is when you commodify a part of human life itself, as is done in work. I think this concept most applies to surrogacy because you're reifying something that used to be just part of life. Uh, pregnancy used to be something that, you know, it was just an emotional experience, an existential experience, a physical experience. And now the surrogates are taught to see that as something separate from themselves, something that doesn't belong to themselves. And often in these clinics, in these surrogacy clinics, um, they're taught techniques on how to emotionally separate themselves from the child they're carrying. For example, never to refer to that child as my baby, never to talk about themselves as mothers, but to say, for example, to the child, oh, you're growing, your parents must be very happy about that. So you actually cut that emotional bond. And, um, you know, I've been accused of being something like a biologist saying this, you know, as if I was promoting the, the mother myth or something like that, that all mothers relate to their babies automatically. Um, but I would say it's very strange that that's being questioned, whereas the myth of fatherhood is not being questioned. Um, the man that is buying a child through surrogacy is basically just providing the sperm, and he doesn't even see often, if the surrogate is in another country, um, that barely growing until a child comes out and is delivered. Why is that not biological mysticism? Why is that not genetic mysticism, I wonder? Why is it always motherhood that has to be questioned? Um, also, in the word surrogate, there is a kind of reification. Uh, we're not supposed to talk about her as a mother, so even the word surrogate mother sometimes is seen as very controversial. So you shorten that to surrogate, and then again to surro. So, for example, in the U.S., if the surrogate lives in the same city and she comes to visit the child that she gave birth to, they will say, oh, your surro is coming. Your surro is coming, not your mother is coming. Um, I would like to end with some quotes from the first legal surrogate mother in the U.S., a woman called Elizabeth Kane. Um, she was inseminated and gave birth to a child for a childless couple. That was the first case that was really put out in the media in the U.S. And um, she was interviewed right after giving up the child. And she then said, it was a pure gift of love. My only happiness comes from knowing that he's home and that his Christmas gifts will be under another tree. Um, she said she didn't feel bad about giving up the child. She said, the joy I had received from seeing him in their arms would last a lifetime. Um, I went to court and signed papers dissolving any legal rights I had to the baby, and once again I felt good. I knew this was the most important day for his new parents, and I went home with no regrets at all. Um, 
Six years later, she had changed her mind. Um, together with 17 other American surrogates, she founded the National Coalition Against Surrogacy. And she describes how she got high on personifying the image of the good, generous woman. She then said, I understand now that, I, that it was important to me to project an apple pie image to the public. I wanted to make surrogacy work so much that I refused to let myself feel or think negatively about my decision. And now she says, I now believe that surrogate motherhood is nothing more than the transference of pain from one woman to another. One woman is in anguish because she cannot become a mother, and another woman may suffer for the rest of her life because she cannot know the child she bore for someone else. Um, do all surrogates feel this way? Of course not. There are, of course, many who never change their minds and who would go on saying that this was a fantastic thing and they would do it again. But I simply think the price of surrogacy is too high. And I believe there is always going to be infertility. There is always going to be childless couples. But I think there are other ways to go around it than to outsource pregnancy and enslave the world's poorest women. Thank you. So do I sit over here? Yes, indeed. And that's good because we've got more time to talk with all of you as well. Yeah, because so I, I'm very short-sighted, so I couldn't see the time from there. That's so okay. I was just so there are microphones. There's one there, and I think there's one upstairs as well. There it is. Just to gather around them, and I'll come to you. And we'd love your your thoughts, your stories, your questions. Um, it is interesting, though, isn't it, Kaiser? What a broad coalition of people across different political leanings social groups, uh, will fight the fight for surrogacy. Yeah. How do you view that broad church, that coalition from the left and the right? Well, basically, the most people who are fighting for surrogacy, for obvious reasons, are people who want to have children through surrogacy. And these were the people that, when I wrote my book in Sweden, were the ones that were really attacking the book, you know, because they want... In Sweden, surrogacy is not legal or illegal, actually. It's kind of so new that we haven't even adopted laws about it. So there is an investigation right now going on. So we'll see where it ends up. But they basically want their kids right now you know, before they get too old. So they would attack me, like, every time I would speak somewhere, they would say, how can she speak, you know, and we are, you know, following a protest and stuff like that. Mm. But then, of course, I think um, the neoliberal right and the postmodern left, all they both have their separate reasons for advocating surrogacy. The right, of course, because it is an industry, and, you know, therefore any industry, whereas the left, because they would still see it as something progressive, because, it, you know, they would link it to gay rights, you know, to me, it doesn't matter if the buyer is gay or heterosexual or single or whatnot. It's not the point. The point is the act in itself that I see as exploitation. So you've described surrogacy as a capitalist creation myth. Yeah, I have. And uh, at the heart of capitalism is individual choice. No, and it's not. It's profit. <laughs> well, but, but choice, Sorry. choice is part of it too. <laughs> That's the lie. That's what they would tell you. So, so let's 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 consider let's consider choice. Let's consider choice, because that is the argument that's put forward on behalf of the buyer and the surrogate. That that it is my choice. Let's start with the surrogate. It's my choice to sell the services of my womb if I so desire. How do you view that variable choice? Um, 
Well, basically, first of all, if you look at the contracts, actually this, the, the contracts in the surrogacy industry, it's very clear that she's actually giving up the right to her own body, that she's giving up the right to choose, because a lot of these contracts are formulated the way, for example, as the Indian woman was saying, she doesn't have the right to decide if they're going to implant embryos in her, if they're going to abort then, if there are too many, they would just abort without asking her. Um, and even in countries where she does have the right to decide herself to have an abortion or not, uh, there's still immense pressure on her to you know, do what the buyers want. So I see this as taking away women's rights over their own body. It's not giving them the right mm -hmm. to their body. And of course we live in a very um, unequal world. So obviously you know, the choice of the rich will be portrayed as a kind of right. And I think it's very interesting how language you know, goes from a desire, very specific desire to have your own newborn genetic white baby, almost to the point where that's a human right to have a child. And where, of course, you have to formulate it like in the reverse way that it's the woman's right and not the buyer's rights. You know, but I've never seen a feminist demonstration where women walking around the street saying like, we want to become surrogates now or we're going to die. Like this doesn't happen. Who's driving this is the buyers, you know, not the women. It's an interesting comparison that you make in this book between prostitution and surrogacy. And of course, you've had plenty of pushback from sex workers who say they are in control of the choice that they're making. They're offer offering the services of their body, not their self. And this is yeah. where you explore this idea of the split self. Yeah. Well, of course, you know, they have the right to say what they think, but I have the right to say what I think as well, you know, and that's the point of debate, that we all share different opinions and, you know, we can all learn from each other, of course. But what I mean by the split self is that, again, with the idea of reification, that when you're selling something that's so close to yourself, and this was something that I noticed when I was writing my book, um, that all women basically in prostitution and surrogacy, whether they were for or against, would have something in common, something similar, they would all say, and that's you shut off. You're not there 100%. Like when you're with a buyer, you don't feel, you think of something else, you have a number of strategies, you know, not to really be there, not to be affected emotionally. And that's what I mean by the split self, that anyone who actually sells something that is so close to yourself, so close to um, the human existence, will have to split it in, in kind of two people. One that is the seller, and that is sitting there and counting the money kind of thing, and one that is the being sold, the thing that is being sold. But I would claim, you know, the body is the self. The body isn't something else. Um, when you're selling your body, it's not like you can say, here's the body and I'm walking away and I'm having a coffee. No, I mean, the body is you. Mm. And I think this refined language, this kind of fragmentation of, of language is also very prevalent in the defense of these two industries. Like, she's not selling herself, she's just selling the body, she's just selling services. Like, really fragmenting the self from, from the service. What if we take the whole selling and buying out of the equation altogether, and you alluded to that, um, and that is altruistic surrogacy. People think that that is, that occupies a different moral landscape. You, you were explaining that, well, it's still a great burden on a woman to go through this, even if she has chosen to do it yeah. and, and agrees not, to, she doesn't want to take a fee. She may be doing it for a, a relative or a friend or a total stranger, but she wants to help a family have a child because she loves her own children so much. It, does that occupy a different moral terrain for you? Well, it does. And I would say in the beginning, I was more positive to it. I would say, well, you know, that's okay, but I'm just against the industry. But then I would see, no, that's actually a trap because why does it make it so much better if she's just not being paid? Of course, if she's going to be pregnant for nine months, she should be paid. 
you know, because, <laughs> do you see what I mean? Like, why does that make it better just because you leave her in poverty? Like, you know, it's just hiding exploitation, really. Um, but I would more look at it as a totality, like see everything together um, and see one thing leads to another kind of thing. If you have a society where nobody's heard of surrogacy, nobody's going to think of that option. But once it's there, you have the altruistic, you have to think of the supply of women that is needed to actually help all the childless and all the male homosexual and all the single men and all the career women that actually want to have children without being pregnant. That's a big supply of women. We don't have that supply of women that would do that without get, getting paid. That's why commercial surrogacy comes into the picture. Of course, nobody would want to pay if they can get it for free. They're paying because they can't find somebody to do it for free. So that's when you have the commercial coming up, then it's, the cost is too high, and that's when you have the outsourcing to poor countries coming up. Then the cost is still too high for some, and that's when you have trafficking coming up. So you have to see the links between all this. You can't just put them apart like they don't you know, have anything to do with each other. You say that the fight uh, against prostitution, uh, we will we'll no doubt have different perspectives in the audience today potentially, and the fight against surrogacy is a fight for, for what it means to be human. Oh God, so pathetic have I said that? You did. <laughs> it sounds very like work. <laughs> no, yeah, but I do believe that, you know. <laughs> I'm not convinced. <laughs> No, but in a sense, I think, okay, the capitalist system today, you know, it's eating into everything where it didn't used to be. You know, that's the nature of the capitalist system. It's eating itself into always new domains. Uh, it used to be imperialism, exploiting territories that, you know, didn't used to have capitalism. Now it's the public sector, which I understand happens here too, that they're privatizing and privatizing everything that used to be public is now becoming private. So the, uh, the capitalist system is eating itself into that and also into our own bodies, into our human relationships. The dream of capitalists would be that we would do nothing for free. We would pay each other for everything. Like we would pay friends to be friends with you. Like that would be the greatest thing for them. Like if, you know, all, everybody paid people to be their friend and you would just say, okay, here's $10 so we can have a coffee, you know. Can, can I talk to you about my problems? Yeah, that's $50, like, and yeah, but seriously, and there will be an agency also, of course, in between. And, and that's their dream. So what they're trying to do is, they're trying for us to actually only have paid sex with each other. You know, their biggest threat is people having mutual sex because they like each other. Of course, they don't want that, you know. Why is that a threat? A threat to them? Mm. Of course, because they're not getting any money from it, you know. Like, if I go out, you know, tonight, and I meet a guy, and I go home with him, you know, the sex industry isn't earning anything, you know? But, of course, if that guy, you know, can't get anything and he goes to a brothel, you know, that's great for them. And that's the same thing with surrogacy. Of course, they would love it if all the rich people of the West decided to outsource pregnancy. Like, you remember the wet nurse phenomenon that we now don't have? You know, what is that compared to surrogacy? You know, surrogacy is a lot more extreme. Mm. So, obviously, if everybody just paid other people to have kids, you know, there's major profit possibilities. And I think, you know, to be socialist is to try to take away domains from the capitalist system and take away them from the realm of profit. And that goes for our relationships, the public sector. I mean, it goes for everything, really. Let's uh, come to you. Hello there. Hi. Feel free to identify yourself. If you have been part of this industry in some way, we would like to hear from you. I would like to hear from you. So feel free to get up. 
um, and share some of your perspective or story. It might be very personal and uh, you'd be very welcome to do so today. Thank you. Okay, so thank you for being here and thanks to the organisers for bringing you. My name's Wendy. I read your book about six months ago, so I was really excited when I saw your name being on the list of speakers. Um, it, I have been amazed at our Australian reaction to the baby gammy situation. It moved very quickly from a situation of being horrified to calls for commercial surrogacy to be legalised in Australia. I was really surprised that we would look at something that had um, been so messed up overseas and said, OK, well, let's do it here. We can't buy those babies anymore. Let's buy Australian babies. I really like your comment on that. Also, we have altruistic surrogacy in Queensland, where I'm from. There's been three cases that I know of since altruistic surrogacy was brought in. Two of them ended up in court. Um, even though we say altruistic surrogacy, there's still a figure of $10,000 that is allowable to be uh, passed hands. And you mentioned briefly uh, about one girl in America, but I wondered whether you would talk more about whether you have any research on the actual babies themselves, because I see the babies as being without a choice. Um, uh, do we take a lot of questions or do I no, answer them? We might as... take that one first because there were a few, yeah, few comments there. Uh, okay. No, let's, let's just take that one first. So yeah. I will answer that yeah, one. Okay. Go for it. Okay, yeah, thank you for your question. And I agree, I saw that in the media when I came here that it's all of a sudden, you know, this wasn't about the abuse that was going on, but about let's do it over here, you know, and as I've already said, I think that's a myth, you know. Um, basically, the countries, uh, the nationalities that most buy um, uh, children through surrogacy in poor countries are the countries where it's already legal in one way or another. Britain and the US, where it's uh, in Britain only altruistic surrogacy is legal, and in the US commercial is legal, because it's already so prevalent there. You see it everywhere. You know, and, and you would go, for example, for an IVF treatment, and they would say, well, you could always consider surrogacy, like that will be an option. Mm. Um, then about the children, um, there has been some research, but it's not very extensive. And um, the, difficulty, the difficult thing is that they have studied the babies when they're still very young. And if you would go now to the kids that were born in the 70s and the 80s in the US, you would find that a lot of them might not know they're born through surrogacy. Um, and then you would have to call them up and say, how do you feel being born through surrogacy? And they would say, well, what? So it's a bit delicate, this thing, but we don't really have good research about that. And there are so many variables to research there, aren't there, that they, they, they might share uh, the genetics of their father, but not their mother. It might be donor egg, or it might be donor sperm, or it might be donor egg and sperm, in which case they're no. not genetically related. And another all. thing that I didn't mention that we also have to look at is, you know, if you, for example, uh, take an egg from a third person, um, that's an industry too. You would see the lists of who they're choosing the egg from, and that it says, of course, you know, there is also a hierarchy of ethnicity there, and, you know, of course you want, you know, a white woman, she has to be tall, she has to be this and that, and she has to be very educated because they think that's inherited. So, you know... <laughs> yeah, but of course, because they want an intelligent child. And then again, there's the case of disabled children, which, you know, baby gamma case is not the only case. There was a case recently in Britain too where the, the intended mother said, well, you know, who wants a, a drooling cabbage for a child or something like that. And I'm not mm -hmm. saying everybody's like that. There's, of course, intended parents who love their disabled children and, you know, as if they were their own and they are their own, you know, in a sense. But it's also the question that when you're not carrying the baby yourself, it's not within you, it's a lot easier to say, well, you know, we'll just cancel this. 
uh, this order. We don't want that. And you've also paid a lot of money for it. So you might want like a perfect product if I'm being a bit cynical. So it's a different thing than if you're carrying it within yourself, you're relating to it and you're saying, well, I love it anyway, I don't care. And people talk about the new eugenics in a very provocative way, but it's part of this conversation. Yeah. You know, how much choice do we have over our genetic heritage or the, our child's genetic heritage? Yeah. Uh, thank you. Your alternative is, is adoption. And I put it to you that the history of adoption is, is a horror. Up until about the 60s, it was baby theft. Now, putting aside that and turning to more contemporary times, what you have is a young woman, usually... Uh, you know, ill-equipped to deal with society, becomes pregnant. She bonds to a child for nine months and because of her social circumstances, she has to give up that child. There must be an enormous amount of grief and pain for her. The child is adopted into a loving family who probably suffers a little bit of guilt too about taking a child from a mother. They're very fortunate to do this. And the child themselves then being raised in an adoptive family and seeking out their mother. The emotional conflicts in adoption, I put it to you, for all involved are at least as bad as for surrogacy, particularly if you just take voluntary altruistic surrogacy, particularly where mother provides child for daughter or sister provides child for daughter. I put that to you. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Um, that's a good comment actually because Adoption is not a problem free at all. I totally agree with you there. And of course, there is even baby trade within adoption, um, mm -hmm. within adoption industry. You know, there has been cases where they've actually even trafficked babies, especially in Guatemala and places like that. But um, I would say like on a theoretical level, there is still a difference because ideally in adoption, you have a child that's an orphan that needs a family. I know that's not always the case. But as it should be, that's a child that actually needs a family to take care of them. And there are many children like that. Because as we know, not all parents can take care of their children. You know, they might die, they might be drug addicts, they might, you know, just not be able to. So of course there should be families for all these babies. Whereas in surrogacy, um, you don't even test whether the mother is fit to take care of her child. You're simply creating a child for the sake of being separated from its mother. And also there was one thing I didn't mention, which is the Convention of the Child, the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child, which actually stipulates that children have the right to their parents. Um, and I think surrogacy violates that convention. Now you would say, what are parents? And that's a tricky question, of course, nowadays, because with all these components, you know, you would have to go back mm. and define that. Yes, indeed, legally, that, that's quite a complex definition, yeah. isn't it? Thank you. Isa, uh, I'm Tina. I was going to ask a similar question, so I'll try and reword it. Um, with adoption, I've got two adopted sisters, and I was going to ask whether you thought that was a form of child trafficking, and you obviously don't from that answer. But do you think surrogacy is having an effect on the number of children, say, overseas who are being adopted? I don't have the statistics of that, but I would definitely see that kind of development because if you have a choice of either having your own genetic child or you adopt someone who's already three, four, or five and already has a history might look different from you, a lot of people choose surrogacy. Um, so I think that's a very sad development because we're always gonna have children who are orphans and who need families. But then of course, we also have to look into the other side of the adoption industry. Can I put it back to you as the sibling of two adopted sisters? What do you think? 
Well, I mean, obviously I love my sisters and they do look different to me because they're both Asian, both from different Asian countries. But, um, you know, I was a child, so I wasn't making those decisions. But you know, we're all just a big family. Um, mm. I do sometimes worry about whether there are children put up for adoption who have perhaps been stolen um, and that side of adoption. Mm. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Upstairs, thanks. Could I make a comment? We've had a lot of discussion about surrogacy on, um, recently in, on television programs. And there's a point about um, surrogacy in India and other countries. And these women, very often who'd come from very impoverished backgrounds, very often had, had no proper shelter. They had a few children, able to have visits from their children every week. And it, it really, um, financially, it really changed their, their whole lives, which I think was a positive thing. And they didn't have any claim on the children because they had their own children and husband. And then they got to have, you know, reasonable standard of living, which they hadn't had before. So just ask your comment about that. Thank you. And of course, many surrogacy agencies say they take mm. precautions they, when recruiting women as surrogates. So some of the things that they do, the women must have had children before, mm. their spouses must agree, that's complicated, no doubt. So the, those concessions are there. I wouldn't call that concessions. I would say it's very convenient for them to know that the woman can actually have children. So if she already has children, you would know that. You wouldn't have to try and try and try again. Plus, if the spouse doesn't agree, it's basically impossible, especially if you live in a very patriarchal country. And as an answer to you, I would say, yes, of course, for some individual women uh, who get you know, the equivalent of years of salary, you know, that changes their life. But I would say, again, that's to the point where poverty becomes an excuse for exploitation. And I don't think that's the way to end poverty at all, you know? And I think it's so sad. Is that the choice you're giving a poor woman? You have to give up your child or you won't get any money, you know? Is that the kind of world we want? Uh, because then again, you have to realize in that context, that also becomes the pressure from everyone. Well, if you're poor, why don't you become a surrogate? And in some cases in India, it's not even the woman that decides to become a surrogate. It's her husband. Sometimes it can be a husband who has like several wives and he would say, well, I will put one as a surrogate and I will take the money. Um, some of these contracts are written in English. Some of these women cannot read and write. I know, of course, that's not always the case, but there have been cases like that. So I wouldn't always say that it's the woman herself who benefits from mm. these contracts. Thank you. Hi. Uh, I'm always really struck by... I don't know, this relentless drive for children or, you know, the hegemonic family. So I was wondering if you could comment a bit on, you know, how those types of social pressures or expectations are fueling this industry, as well as maybe the other ways that people go about getting children aside from having them themselves. Um, yeah, that's a very good topic to talk mm. about. You know, I think that comes with the emergence of the nuclear family. Is that what you call it here too? Um, when we lived in the extended families, you know, there would always be people who didn't have their own children, but since we were kind of more living together, that would be okay, and you would help, you would be the aunt, you know, that would help out with mm. your... Takes you know, a village. Exactly, Hillary Clinton. Um, 
No, but um, and nowadays you live in these small units where everybody has to have their own child, and we're also um, gay male homosexuals are like um, emulating this nuclear family model where you don't want, you know, the the we call it the star family, which is the family with a lot of people involved. I don't know what you call it here. For example, like a gay couple and a lesbian couple, or a gay couple and a single woman, or something like that. Mm. We call it the star family. What do and we call it? I don't know. Well, it's a, kind of, it's a kind of, you know... Is there a word for yeah, such a Yeah, it's a kind thing? of positive term for, like, the new type of families, you know. But Increasingly normal, I think. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but there's some who don't want that. Like, they want to emulate the nuclear family ideal where it's only the couple and the children. But that, of course, requires, you know, for biological reasons, it requires the absent mother. It requires a woman to step in, have the child, and then go away. You know, and I think that's a very pro problematic construction because mm. you can't overlook her. She's not a container. She's not an oven. She's a human being. She has feelings too. And I think it's, it's amazing how this, from the beginning of a very feminist progressive idea that, you know, women aren't only made to be mothers is now being kind of perverted into defending the interests of the world's richest people saying, well, just because she's a woman doesn't mean she relates to her child, you know, and that's just a social construction. Well, you know, sorry, but again, why don't you question the construction of fatherhood and genetic children and especially, as you were saying, the drive for everyone to have their own child? Yes, indeed. And perhaps uh, someone here will have a comment about that. Upstairs, thanks. Um, my question is about when I was discussing this in my household, we had no problems with the paid surrogacy and we undenied a bit like you about altruistic surrogacy and then we kind of wondered where we drew the line so where you talk about say a gay couple that enlist a, a, a woman friend or a lesbian couple and it's like one of their eggs and one of their sperm and they're kind of somehow involved but not really involved where do you kind of see all those kind of arrangements happening mm. and and where that fits with surrogacy well i think that would be the ideal actually if you somehow as, as the surrogate mother wouldn't be a surrogate mother, but you would actually be able to be present, you know, in the upbringing of the child. Am I understanding you right? It's kind of my question, but then if you're not, like, you might not be that involved, I guess, it, in some ways it's a little bit like altruistic light, I guess, because <laughs> you kind of... Yeah, so I, had, I spoke to Andrew Solomon recently, um, incredible writer in the US, but, and he's had a child with his husband who, who had already had a child with a lesbian couple um, what the other half of the lesbian couple gestated the child that Andrew uh, had. He I'm received here. a donor egg for that. Um, and then there was, but there was one person missing. And no, it was actually the person missing was the person who gestated the child. When he yeah. lists, when he makes a list of incredibly complex arrangements. The people that are actually involved in the upbringing all of the child. They all get on, they mean. all relate, but there was one key figure and it was that absent mother that you mm. talk about, which was very interesting, yeah. having him list all those people and then miss one. Yes. Yeah, I think I just want to want to quote something because um, one interesting thing, I think the rhetoric in, in, in the surrogate industry is, is about, you know, whole families, you know, people... Um, you know, perfection, people having finally the, the right to have their... Um, um, While you're finding that, yeah. let's grab another question. Thank you. I'm not sure we quite answered the question up there, but we'll try to. Yeah, it was just about trying to find where the line is, I guess. Yeah. I think I get you. Yes. Yeah, so what's thanks. surrogacy and what's not in terms of the various very variations of families these days? Let's grab another yeah, question. Thank you. Uh, yeah. 
I was interested that you're very negative, shall we say, about altruistic surrogacy. And I'm wondering um, how you feel about um, altruistic donation of kidneys or something like that, because families do that for each other. Um, how is it different? And does that make it, you know, is there a, a level at which it's okay? You know, if it's life and death, it's okay. But if it's you know, the emotional trauma of not having a child, it's not. Well, Gee, we're getting somewhere very, very interesting now, yeah, aren't we? Yeah, thank you. No, I, I could very feel the sort of murmur through the crowd. Um, a kidney is not a person. A kidney is a part of a person. A baby is a person. Um, that's the difference. Um, you don't miss your kidney. You don't cry for your kidney. You don't say, oh, my kidney, I want it back so bad. Um, I'll tell you what you do if your kidney's gone kaput. <laughs> Having friends in that yeah, situation, you, you they, they would weep it, for but, their kidney. Yeah. Um. So just throw that question into a mic if you can. Would you cry for your womb? For my womb? Would you weep for your womb? I mean, like giving away the actual womb or...? I think just conceptually, would you weep for your womb? Is that right? Uh, I think he's tongue-in-cheek. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> okay, so a kidney is, is different. Australian humour? No, well, I don't know, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Let's grab another question. Thank you. Hi, thanks. Um, yeah, look, it was a great talk, and I think this definitely classifies as a dangerous idea. Um, <laughs> my, my question is possibly a little bit broader. So you've made the comment that, um, you know, can we put a, human, a value on human life, and do we want to live in that society? I guess my comment and then question is governments already do that. We have a value of about $40,000 for each of us. That's how much oh, yeah? the government actually puts as a value on you and me and everyone in this room. So isn't that what surrogates are essentially doing? They're just kind of following the, they're just following the trend. Governments do it, so well, now I can do it. I can essentially put a value on my baby. Is that, well, not my baby, because I can't have a baby. But <laughs> so I guess that's kind of my question. So, if we live in this capitalist society, what's wrong with essentially putting governments to it? Can't we too? Um, first, I just want to ask you, like, in what way are they saying we're all worth $40,000? Like, to whom or why or...? So it, it's a, it's, um, it's a, it comes down to kind of financial, like, um, analytics and so forth. So they essentially have a certain amount of money, and then for cancer research, they can only put aside a certain amount of money. So, and that goes for everything that they apply. That's transport, um, cancer, you name it. The whole kind of gamut of what we are worth and what the government has, they have to allocate that money somewhere. And what it comes down to is a figure of about $40,000 per person. So we could cure cancer now, but... We choose not to because it would cost more than $40,000 per person. So that's the kind of, the, the, that's capitalism okay. at its core. Yeah. And so is this so, just an extension of that quantification yeah. that's going I mean, on anyway? That's extremely cynical. I actually didn't know that that was the sum that they put on each person. I would want to go back and see how much it is in my country, if it's the same or we're worth more or less. Yeah, so how so does it, this work? But... <laughs> um, no, but you know we're not li we're living in a capitalist system, but not a total capitalist system. I don't think there's ever been such a society as a total capitalist system. Referring to what I was saying before about you know paying for everything, I mean just the fact that the smoking ban that you have noticed that you have here in Australia, which is very extensive, that's totally anti-capitalist. You know companies would not want that at all. The fact that you can't even see the brand uh, on the actual cigarette pack, you know that's anti-capitalist. For example, I don't personally agree with that, but I still think that you know you see how society is always moving back and forth. In some areas, 
capitalism is extending in other areas, you know, it's, it's going back. So that's always a fight. If you read, for example, novels from France or Britain from like 100 or 200 years ago, you see that love was completely commercialized back then. You didn't marry someone until you asked how much do you earn, what family are you from, are you from a good or bad family? That was the most important thing. We don't really have that society anymore. People nowadays tend to marry for love, so it's gotten less capitalist in that way. But it's always a fight, it's going back and forth, and I think, you know, if we're against capitalism, we have to keep on that fight. Keep capitalism out of human relationships as much as possible and take it out of the public sector as well, I would say. Take back the government. Thank you. <laughs> thanks. thanks, Ta. Upstairs, thanks. Um, obviously, with lots of complicated issues in society like this, we have regulation for how we can conduct in this space. And you were speaking before around adoption and how there are times when that is very good and there are times where that is very complicated. Is there an upper ethical area of surrogacy that you think actually has a place or is all surrogacy to be tarred with the same brush? Mm, that's a good question as well, because regulation tends to be a kind of magical word that makes everybody go, oh, it's taken care of. Mm. Like, I don't have to worry because it's regulated. But you have to look into what does regulation mean exactly. And a lot of people tend to think that that would mean that you're choosing in the individual cases, like that's good and that's bad, but it doesn't really work that way. You know how you have a regulation, but then you're not God sitting there judging the separate individual cases. So... Um, mm. I would say, of course, there are some cases where I would say, well, this was not as problematic, you know, in surrogacy, where, for example, a mother has a child for her daughter or something, and they're all living together, and she actually gets to kind of be the mother, in a sense, as well, or the grandma. I am just scared that if you regulate it, you're going to have all these other cases, too, that you cannot control, and in the end, the side effects are going to be so big that it's not worth it. It's not worth having this whole industry for the sake of the one good case, you know, I think we can live without that. Okay, so in the last few minutes that we've got, do you mind if we just take a flow of questions? Pardon? I'm going to take a few questions oh, yeah. in a row, yeah, no, sorry. No, that's fine. Yeah. Um, mine is more just a point of clarification. It seems that in most of your argument, you draw a very clear line that motherhood stems from carrying the baby in the actual womb. And I'm really having difficulty working with your argument because I've seen it so clearly where it's not the womb producer or, you know, provider that creates the motherhood experience and spiritually what makes you a mother isn't the fact that you have a uterus. So I'm, I'm just looking for some clarification mm. from you that, so you really truly do value the womb over the egg or the, the bond. Which... Just good ties point. in with that question. Yeah, I think good. we need to address that okay, now okay, before I'll taking the next year. Make yet. a mental note of that. Should we, should we actually take that one now? Because that's quite, that's pretty yeah, potent, okay, isn't it? Yeah, okay, if you don't mind waiting. Yeah. Well, I, where, where is she now? Oh, sorry. Oh, okay, there you are. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, thank you for the question. I agree, it is tricky. Um, I would say it's actually very strange if you look at like the, the egg donation uh, rules and, and rules uh, regarding surrogacy because you know, they're the total opposite of each other. Like when you donate an egg, you say, well, it's the woman that carries the child that is the mother. It's the egg doesn't matter. So we shouldn't care about that. She is the mother. But in surrogacy, you say the opposite. It's the genetic link that matters. She's just, you know, a carrier or something like that. So I would say there's a total confusion. Um, I suppose because I'm mainly talking about surrogacy, I do talk about the surrogate as the mother. And I also think that the link, the emotional link that you have when you are, um, when you're pregnant um, is more than just, you know, 
the genetic material. But then again, for the child, sometimes the genetic material means a lot as well, knowing where you're coming from, what are your roots. So I agree, it's very tricky. It is tricky. Sometimes yeah. you want to run as far as away from your yeah. generic heritage. You know, in you in the case where there's, um, <laughs> where there's two lesbian mothers, of course, they're both mothers, in a sense. You know, even the woman that didn't carry the child yeah. is, of course, called the mother. So Yeah. Thank you. Let's take two in a row. Hi, I hope oh, you haven't just already answered that, but I'm quite interested to hear what your thoughts are on other forms of assisted reproduction. And if you agree with certain forms of assisted reproduction and not others, is it fair to say assisted reproduction is okay for some people, but some forms are okay for some people, but not for others? Um, can you really deny a certain group of people the chance to have children? Thank you. Good question. Let's take yeah. one more if we can. Thanks. My question is about eugenics. And I'm wondering if you know or if there's any evidence of whether it's common or not that people are arranging for tailor-made babies when they in enter into especially commercial surrogacy. Thank you. And we touched on that, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Um, now, so the first one was... How prevalent is it? Um, tailor-made babies, you said? Let's Okay, and let's grab one final question while we've got the time. Sorry, just quickly, if if you would like to make it illegal, essentially, does that not put anyone who's involved in it in a black market more at risk? Yep, thank you. Good question. Oh, th those are all very good they questions. They are. So the first one was what, yeah. assisted reproduction. Um, does that? What's your view on the, the kind of broad range of offerings in terms of assisted mm. reproduction? Does that include, for example, insemination, IVF yes, and all that? Yes, a lot. Well, I would draw a line between something that actually um, requires another person, you know, to be to be pregnant. For example, um, for example, I don't compare insemination, like a sperm donation, with surrogacy. I know a lot of people have made that comparison. Like, if lesbian women can have sperm donation, why shouldn't gay males be able to have surrogacy? You know, and you cannot compare the physical risks of donating sperm, which has no risk at all and takes five minutes. Um, <laughs> you know. With, um, or a bit more depending on the person, maybe, or a bit less. Um, and uh, with uh, surrogacy, which, you know, is nine months of, you know, all these risks and pain and all that. So I would draw a line. Uh, regarding, like, other things like egg donation, I know it can be problematic as well, but I just would say that I don't go into that in my book. What about baby trade? What about the black market? I mean, black market. So if you, if you do ban it, mm. does it then push it underground? And certainly that's been the argument against not banning uh, prostitution, which Sweden yeah. has done. Well, I would say that's a big myth generally, that if you make something illegal, uh, it will be bigger. Um, I don't know if of any industry where that's actually happened, where you can prove that's happened. Um, in legalization, you also have a black market, you know. I mean, cigarettes, again, are legal, but you have a black market in cigarettes, you know. I mean, there is a lot of things that are legal and you have a black market because they don't want to pay tax. So I would say more we have to look at it from the angle of prevalence, you know, and of also establishing what norms we want to have in society, what is okay and what is not okay, what are you giving the green light to, what are you saying, you know, no to. And I know this talk wasn't supposed to be about prostitution, but in Sweden since 99, 
Um, actually, we're the first country to have a law that doesn't prohibit the selling of sex, but the buying. So you can basically sell sex anywhere. You can sell sex outside of school or outside of church. You know, nobody can do anything to you. But no one can you. buy it off you. Uh, but nobody can buy it, exactly. Because as we see it, uh, it's the buyer that's committing a crime because he's buying somebody else. So, mm. um, and there were fears when we passed this law that it would just be a giant black market. But from the investigation that we made in 2010, this hasn't proven to be the case at all. And I would say in Sweden right now, I mean, paying for sex, if you are a young guy, paying for sex is like, what? If you pay for sex, I mean, you're considered like a loser. Like you can't get it on your own. Like you have to pay for it. Like you're ugly, you're asocial, you like, what are you? You know, I mean, that's just not in the picture. It doesn't mean, of course, that it doesn't happen. Of course, it does happen, but it's not something that's socially accepted at all, you know, and that's changing norms in society. Well, what an interesting discussion indeed. Thank you very much for your great input too. Let's thank Kaiser Eckers Ekman. Thank you. Well done.